Hello again, folks. You're back with the Virtually Agile podcast, where we bring you conversations with agile thought leaders as well as newer voices. I'm your host, Chris Stone, the Virtual Agile Coach. In today's episode, I'm joined by an absolutely prolific blogger since before the days of LinkedIn, and we talk about remote working, flow in the context of agility, and the BCS conference, which looks to amplify newer voices. Let's do this, folks. Enjoy the show. Hello, Agilists. Welcome to another episode in Season 5 of the Virtually Agile podcast. Now, as you know, on this podcast, we aspire for neurodiversity and the amplification of voices that are seldom heard, as well as featuring established thought leaders. Today's guest is an enterprise Agile coach and a digital leader, a conference speaker on Agile strategy, a teacher, and a remote work advocate. I'm very pleased to welcome Craig Coburn to the show. Hello, Chris, and I'm glad to be here. So, uh... It's nice to meet. Uh, we uh, we should meet in person sometime. Absolutely, I did unfortunately miss getting along to Lean Agile London. Was it, was it last? Yeah, week? yeah, it was last uh, Monday, but... Tuesday. Good. It was nice to see people again. I'm planning to get to uh, one of the Scotland's conferences. I think there's one in October, yeah, and that's Scotland. just around by my birthday. So I'll I'll sure to catch up with you there. Grab a grab a drink. Meet you and. Scott and Seth and all those folks. Yeah, it's all those people. I mean, we're all down in London. It's it's nice to have in-person conferences. I am a big advocate of remote working and hybrid and mm. everything else. It has been very challenging to get a successful conference uh, remote. Mm. Um, but the the one in, um, in in London actually had a remote um, dial-in from uh, Kiev. So it was very good to be able to allow people to participate when... Otherwise, uh, travel would have been a challenge. Wonderful. Now, Craig, for anyone who isn't familiar with you and your work, please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey with Agility. Uh, okay, then. So originally, I was a software engineer, um, then went through um, really a bit of test management, um, working in waterfall environments, uh, qualified with Prince 2, and then qualified with MSP, Managing Structured Programs, I got introduced to Agile about 2006 because I went to a talk. But the first chance to really start using Agile practices was more XP stuff in 2007, and it helped a, big, a lot. Um, I was then uh, using Agile um, in central government. Uh, they were one of the early adopters. And more laterally, it's, it's been banking. Um, so a variety of roles. I first became an Agile coach in 2011. Then for a few years, I sort of split the coaching with Agile project management to try and introduce more agile practices in a slightly more waterfall context. But more recently, it's just been pretty much agile coaching the whole time. And in 2009, I branched out into conference speaking more, um, and I do a number of talks around, as you said, uh, complexity, uh, visualising talks, uh, red team thinking, remote working, and, and so on. Wonderful. Great introduction to yourself there. A uh, similar journey with me a little bit. Background was in more the traditional, the waterfall style of things. I, I did get a prince to managing successful programs, and I was originally working in the, the more traditional project management space before evolving into more, more agile ways of working and seeking to leverage those. And to that end, I once upon a time described myself as an agile evangelist. I, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid a bit and thought it was the, the next best thing and, and thought it was the answer to all of my clients' problems, but have since yeah. learned and would... Probably just probably describe myself more as an agile pragmatist these days. Waterfall isn't the enemy; yeah. it is one option to help someone achieve their outcomes. Yeah, I, I, that obviously outcomes really matter. It's about really understanding what are meaningful outcomes for the business in the future. I find a lot of businesses focus on yesterday's problems. 
They don't really think so much about strategy. They don't actually visualize what their opponents are going to do. So their strategies often become to-do lists uh, without too much context. And, you know, it's it's interesting to see some of the challenges. We see this in the surveys that a lot, I mean, I'm now writing a new article uh, and the article is basically emphasizing the fact that a lot of transformations tend to be very framework-led, adopt this framework mm-hmm. and roll it out, um, which is nice out of the box. You know, you can get up to speed quickly and there's lots of training materials available out there. But what we realize is, first of all, every implementation should be specific to the context that the organization is trying to address. The organization should have clear goals to bring about alignment. And also what's often missing in these framework approaches is two of the agile values in the agile manifesto, which is about people and interactions and collaboration and so on. And that's half the values. In fact, it's the first one, deliberately so. And we see a lot of the um, missing elements in these transformations being about leadership, culture, bringing people together, and actually leaders going first to actually drive the culture change that's needed because we know from Patrick Lentioni's and Google's uh, great teams, it's about psychological safety and many other factors too, but that's the most important one. And often it's just missed out because frameworks are imposed and it's just get on with it. It's all so very contextual, isn't it? I always aspire mm. to help those I'm working with achieve their outcomes by contextualizing or customizing the approach we're using based on the situation they're facing, the, the context mm-hmm. they're in, the, the people and culture they have. And too often it does become this kind of copy and paste or this, yeah, here, here's your transformation. We're going to install a framework. I saw a great visual not long ago that's kind of showed agile transformation. It had like installation complete and it had like yeah. little bars. If <laughs> installed. And then, yeah, you're done. And it doesn't tend to work that way, I find. But, yeah, Agile is installed, but it's not actually delivering the outcomes. It's like, you know, was it the thing that the customer needed and, and did they understand what they genuinely wanted? And so sometimes say it's like there's nothing more inefficient than going in the wrong direction quickly. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and it's nice to be able to refer to your content as well because it's very much a bit more out there, a bit more experiential. And, and the, 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 the retro boards of the music, I think as well, bringing in multiple senses really gets that engagement right up. You know, sometimes people just feel it's a, it's a retro and it's a bit of a tick box and it's the same every time. But bringing that variety and excitement and all your senses to the meeting really gets that deeper thinking going. Mm, and I, the word you use there, experiential, I, I mean, increasingly mm. describing... I guess the, the the ceremonies, the meetings, the, the occasions that I'm facilitating as experiences. And if I can make them experiential experiences by, yeah. as you say, leveraging a range of senses to create engagement, to provoke different thinking, that's mm-hmm. what I aspire towards. And I've found that by utilizing these methods, the, the outcome has been, as I said, engagement, great outcomes, yeah. people looking forward to doing retros rather than it being this tick box exercise. Yeah, I mean, we see that, actually, I mean, there's lots of metrics out there, like flow metrics and such like, but sometimes we lose sight of team engagement, team metrics, culture metrics, you know, customer engagement. Unless you've got that engagement, it's very difficult to make change happen. Change is difficult, change is hard. If people aren't engaged, it's it's going to be a, a slower process. And, and really, it's about just having as much fun at work as you can whilst being effective. Completely. 
very much a believer in that. It's one of my, my own personal values. But Craig, you mentioned, you touched on a topic there, flow, and that is one of the, the themes of season five of the mm-hmm. show. So I'd love to hear from you in your words. What does flow mean to you in the context of Agile? Well, I suppose there's two things. I mean, there's, um, I think it's Nigel Thurlow has a book on flow. Now, that book is touching more about a more sense of flow, of everything's just working well, and it's like being in the flow, that sort of sense. On a more, I suppose, quantitative basis, there are flow metrics, you know, like flow velocity and flow load and all these sorts of things. I see a lot about disagreement within the Agile community as to what metrics really matter. There's an interesting mm-hmm. point that I was reading not that long ago about flow efficiency. And um, Dan Vacanti and Don Reinertson were having a good Twitter conversation. It's really funny. So five or six years ago, if you were to say to an organization, they want to be on Twitter, because that's where all the learning happens, right? You can really reach out to them. They say, no, 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 social media is a real no-no. Nothing happens there. It's all about uh, silly stuff. But yeah, there's some great, great stuff happening. And they had this uh, interesting dialogue about uh, flow efficiency, that whilst it's important to understand it and to remove inefficient parts, actually optimizing for too much efficiency can then lead to a team being 100% allocated, and that and then causes queues and things then slow down. So we really want to maybe aim for, I don't know, a bit less, like 70 or 80% efficiency possibly. Because, um, you know, I was in London last week. If London underground gets really busy and working really efficiently because everything's jammed full, the, the trains then have to take longer in the station to let everybody out because it takes longer to leave the train. So efficiency, you know, the train is efficient, but the system is not. And that's the difference. So what we're seeing now is a slightly better understanding of flow metrics. We're looking at things like, well, flow velocity matters, cycle time matters. But as I found out in banking, trying to model a system like that to say, well, we don't actually know what the cycle time is yet. Let's measure it. Well, stuff then has to move through the system in order to then measure it. So that might take months. So whilst useful, it's also better to look at things like item age because that's a predictor of cycle time. So as much as possible, yeah, these metrics matter, but if we can shift it a little bit more to predictive metrics, but then get early insight. So, you know, and things like as well, lead time, of course, like, you know, that, that's, see if you're buying a car, you know, it's a very predictable, stable process with building a car and then shipping it. We kind of really get a good understanding what lead time matters. But within knowledge work, it's a little bit, you know, up and down because it's different sizes and we're learning. So, so yeah, lead time matters too, but it's, it's a bit more of an indicator. And the other thing is flow distribution. So what type of work are we putting through the system? What type of work do we want to put through the system? So do we want it to be in a position where we're not dealing with much technical debt? So are we now dealing with tech debt reduction in order to get there? So are we also processing lots of bugs? So therefore, do we want to do better testing and proactive measures to get to better state. So that flow velocity is not just about delivering product out the door, which is often the fascination of companies to ship product, but that bigger picture of where do we want to be in the future in terms of the types of work we are working on, and therefore how do we get there? Are we setting aside enough time, or is our tech debt mountain getting bigger or smaller? Yeah, so you mentioned a number of different metrics uh, in the context of Agile there. The last one being obviously flow distribution. And and we see this a lot, or I've seen this a lot in the Agile coaching space where you've got teams that are, or teams or organizations that are so focused on delivering product, new features, new features, new features, they become a feature factory and they forget about technical debt. And then that builds up and then it slows down delivery. 
So yeah, having a, having a distribution of different types of work going through your system uh, that enables you to deliver at pace and be responsive and all the good things that we know we're seeking without uh, slowing things down too much and becoming overly focused on a different area. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's perfectly true, but this, this sort of feature factory, I have seen it a lot. And of course, the features are valuable. There's no shortage of valuable work. But sometimes you need to take that step by and go, start with why, right? Why this work as opposed to some other work? It's not just about the numbers and it's not just about the pound signs. There's maybe a bigger context to say, well, this one is particularly critical now because we think a competitor will do this product in six months' time. So it's valuable to get out the door first. So it's this sort of more product landscape that we're operating in to say, where do we want to, the business to be? Because you know, as we saw, like there's a lot of companies that just relied on feature factories and shipping stuff and making money, and then like the blockbusters and Kodaks, they got disrupted. So that awareness of where disruption might come from and what are you doing to mitigate it and protect yourself and where you sit in the industry. So are you in the most vulnerable quarter or the least vulnerable quarter? Because when change happens, you might not aware of what's happening, but if the bottom quarter goes and you're not in it, then you bought yourself some time. Mm. It's uh, it's interesting. You, I've, I've talked there about feature factories, and I was having a, a conversation similarly about this topic with Kareem Harbert recently. And we were talking about how it's so rare on a product backlog to see an item that looks to remove things from a product. So kind of negative features to remove things that aren't being used. They're essentially debt to the product. They are things that you need to maintain and that has a cost to it. And it's it's so rare to see these things and there should be more of it because yeah, how definitely. often- I mean, First of all, it costs effort to build those things that people don't use. But secondly, there's, yeah. two, there's two really good examples. It's the Betty Crocker cake example. And this is like way before Abstract, this is like, I don't know, 50, 60 <laughs> years ago. They, they, they had this cake mix and, and um, trying not to be too sexist, but it's largely housewives buying the product. But they didn't want that product because they felt they were fraudulently treating their partners and producing this fantastic cake. So Betty Crocker then took out the egg. So therefore, the, the, the person making the cake then had better ownership of the product. And therefore, by taking something away, the product became more valuable. And it's, it's like we call this the IKEA effect as well. By taking away the built product, and people then building something themselves, basically you're taking away the air, <laughs> you know, it's like flat, you build it yourself, and then you've got more commitment to that product. So actually by sometimes reducing features, you're not only saving yourself the cost of building them, you're actually making the product more viable as well. It's a really interesting uh, parallel you draw there, because you do, if you've ever built anything from IKEA, you do get a sense of accomplishment from having built it, A, following the instructions, B, putting it together, especially if it's one of those ones that says, build this with two people and you manage to build it on your own. Mm. I definitely feel a sense of accomplishment from that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And of course, if you get something through the box and it's ready made, it's easier to just say, nah, don't like that. But if you've then invested that time in building it, you go... I've now committed. It's a sunk cost fallacy, but still, people are less likely to return it. Sure. So, Craig, as an enterprise agile coach, what what approaches do you use to help the clients or the people you work with to improve flow in the workplace? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say that at the start, it's trying to take a baseline as much as you possibly can so that when you start to make a change, you can see the effect of that change. 
and also to start to model the way that work happens. So you could do a Kanban board. Sometimes that's a bit little bit left to right of how does product get built, but not to lose sight of organizational processes, like things like sign-offs, all the pre-work before it gets to the team, the finance processes, all that. So to try and model and understand the system. So so the, the fallacy I see is the organization just focusing on, let's do Scrum, the teams can work, bigger and better and, and scale up, and that'd be fantastic. But actually, that, that scrum part of it is just a very small part of the overall process. It's all the governance, it's all the lead time, it's all the waiting, it's all the queues. So really, it's about trying to get that picture of how does work happen around here? What are the supporting processes? How long do things genuinely take? And where can we start to make a difference here in order things that then you know start moving forward? But of course, there's no point as I say moving forward with the wrong stuff. So at the outset, it's things like reduce harm, I would call this. And reducing harm is things like identifying duplicate work and stopping that. Mm. Or identifying things that you call like the burning platform. So that's things like we are in the middle of recruiting people, there's the job spec, look at the skills. Well, we know we don't need those skills. But if those people then get hired and through the door, you then got to retrain them. So stop the things that are evidentially likely to cause you more work if you don't address them now. And then when you stop the effectively the burning fires, then you can start to think more about the incremental improvement and where do we go from now, things like optimising the process. Excellent thoughts there. Thank you for sharing. I particularly like your 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 reference there to getting a baseline, a starting point. You've got to start with where you are now before you can improve upon things. Uh, and understanding that and aligning everyone around to the understanding of that is very important. So I think there's a phrase that's often attributed to Drucker, isn't it? What doesn't get measured doesn't get improved. Until you've got a measurement, a baseline, a starting point, it's difficult to then improve on that and try the next experiment, the next changing a, a variable which might improve that flow. So yeah, and, and, yeah. so, so you, you don't see improvements. Sometimes improvements might happen quickly or slowly. It's about giving it enough time to really make itself transparent and to get feedback. And sometimes there's a justification for multiple experiments. You know, we saw that with COVID. They did multiple types of vaccine because you couldn't just wait for one. So therefore, there's a justification sometimes for multiple experiments if, if uh, you know, there's time criticality. Um, where I also often see uh, as an uh, enterprise coach is typically... We are working with teams or teams of teams, but often it's not necessarily them that's the problem, it's the system. And trying to get more in tune with what's this address CV able to do? What are the organizational processes that are affecting everybody? And it's trying to get more into that sort of space to say, well, these processes affect everybody. So if they're poor, that affects everybody, not just a scrum-sized team. So it's really about trying to add the value by determining the most viable problem to address. I'm such a believer in that exact principle that often it's not the people at fault, it's the system that's failing the people. Mm. So really, really key, I believe, is to identify systemic impediments to progress. So often you you do, or teams have retrospectives where they identify what I tend to describe as things that are in their own sphere of influence to, to control, things they can change themselves. And then they tend to escalate things that are outside of their control, usually to a scrum master who m- might then escalate to a, a scrum of scrums or, or however, depending on the scale or ha- whichever flavor of agility you're, you're doing there. But identifying these systemic impediments that slow the teams mm. down and then, you know, 
highlighting those to to leadership, flagging them to uh, them in a servant leadership style. Here are the things preventing us from progressing. Help us, please. Yeah. How do so you, you can look at things to... like the number of dependencies, external dependencies, how the impact of those dependencies as well. And a lot of these dependencies are because maybe the, the organizational structure isn't optimum. And we look at value streams, and that's a useful format. It's not always always the best format. You know, team topology says that there's four formats. But it's about trying to get the dependencies down to a pragmatic minimum. And, of course, the silos to address. Now, obviously, a lot of organizations have organized their own skill set or some other silo. And so I say, well, silos are actually quite hard to break because when you start to restructure a company, organizational anxiety sets in, people worry about their jobs. So I say, well, you know, I try to address the silos in a sensitive way, but the one silo you can try and address, in fact, there's two. One is the silo of information. You can start to distribute information much quicker than you can distribute knowledge. So if there is information silos, just make the information open within the organization, and then people can access that information without having to go via somebody that slows them down or gets in the way or they don't have time. So looking at that sort of information silo is a good potentially quite quick win, but very effective. I think they use that at Tesla to just give people the apps, the data, say, go and explore and see if we can find a problem. And the other silo, of course, is management, because management is its own silo. It's a horizontal silo, and sometimes they make decisions in isolation based on their understanding. And as we know, boards are not terribly diverse. They're maybe a certain age, so they're maybe not quite so close to the action and, and not got that diversity of thinking they really need to really embrace the, the, the world that we live in now with all the change going on. So trying to trying to break down the information silos and then the organization silos is useful. It's definitely a trend I've observed in the past three to four years, at least, particularly with the clients that I'm working with, where they're moving towards this concept of democratizing data. So rather mm. than that traditional mindset where it used to be, you have access to data if you have permission to access it. It tends mm. to, or they try. a lot of companies are trying to flip that around and say, you have access to everything unless it's something that's mm. a certain level of security that you shouldn't be able to see. Mm. And that- It's commercially sensitive or it's personal, fair enough. But uh, I think the principle exactly. is default to open. Exactly. Default. So democratize that data, default it to open, and that can promote and remove that silo of information not being accessible. And mm -hmm. another thing I, I was keen to, to highlight from what you were saying there was this, this concept of not just managing dependencies, but looking to remove them. Mm -hmm. I think there is, there, is, there is no utopian state where there is never any dependencies. It's almost like that zero COVID mm -hmm. dream we used to have a little while ago. Removing all dependencies is, is, is not realistic, but we shouldn't just look to manage dependencies and put processes in place on top of process, on top of process to manage them. We should always aspire, I feel, to remove them over time. And that, and that can be done through various experiments. As you say, highlighting number of dependencies we have, the cost of that, and then looking to reduce that over time through experimentation. Because yeah, an early handoff is a potential delay, an escalation up, or an escalation across to a different tribe or work unit. And, and what we sometimes notice is that because you've put it in your backlog, then you suddenly realize that you need another tribe's help. You're then landing on their backlog quite late. Now, of course, Agile is about minimizing that cost of change, but late arriving changes tend to have more costs than early changes. And so that, I, I did a simulation once and I noticed this. Imagine it's like, you've probably seen this in the M25, it's when enough cars come on the side road to just hit that tipping point the main road then becomes congested and both roads then start having a backlog that then just filters backwards. So what we actually see sometimes is that 
if a tribe is working away to a backlog, and then another tribe starts asking it for for work because of a dependency, we can see that that side channel becomes very sensitive to changes. A small change there can produce a huge change in the overall system. So the system is very sensitive to that sort of behaviour. That's why it's good to try and reduce the dependencies if you can. There's an interesting technique that I've I've learned recently. It's a, a eight wastes exercise. I, I experienced as part of the the IC Agile um, Enterprise Coaching Bootcamp, and it had essentially the ability for, or had a visual showing uh, the standard or the men- a workflow that many companies will be familiar with. It, it'll have like a design element to it, and then there's like a testing team, and then just showing all the potential silos throughout. And then you've got all the eight wastes of software development and you basically position those where you have seen waste appear. And you could do that exact same exercise, mm. grab a Miro board, draw your workflow, grab some, some waste icons and just flag where is there waste in the process and then just say, which one of these is hitting us heaviest? And then form an experiment to try and improve that. Again, do it in- incrementally. Don't try and change everything all at once. Maybe say, hey, we're, we're, we're facing a big, a big waste here with... Um, time people sitting around not being able to work because mm-hmm. there's, there's handoff periods and things like that. What what small experiment can we do in the next six weeks that might change yeah. that? And I found that to be a, a powerful start with now exercise. Where are we as a team? This is a systemic impediment. What can we do to change that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the principle of make stuff visible. Uh, in, interesting, as um, Dan Bacanti was speaking last week and he was saying, he's trying to veer away slightly from using the word visible. It's not so inclusive because, of course, people with site difficulties might use a different practice uh, reading the screen but it's just w- making work open or accessible mm. and, and you said there about waste there was a lean address got into a couple of years ago there was a practice of uh, as a team together they would maybe have lego colors and they'd use red for mm. waste and then basically that pile of lego you could take that to the retro and say well there's a waste or you could just um, accumulate it as a waste snake on the board and it gets so big it can't be ignored and especially if it's a visible board and people walk past it, they go, well, what's that? Or do you need some help? Uh, we did the RBS. We had a, a cool ball of things that were great and things that were not so great. And, of course, because the visibility of that, people walking past it, is then like, oh, right, okay, so you want to handle that, right, so we'll deal with that. And often um, it's, it's interesting because you know, it's, it's sometimes easier to target waste first because you can see it. Um, and and it's also like as easier to say, so what are the dysfunctions around here? So it's, imagine an analogy with a child. You'd say, don't touch the hot kettle. Now, they might want to do it in a safe way and then learn. But you don't say, don't touch the hot kettle. Do this, do that, do that, do that, and give them 10 options. Now, it's just easier to just say, don't do that, and then open up the space of options, saying, well, off you go. You can do all these other things instead. And that, just saying to a team, don't do these because of dysfunctions, creates options. Right? But you're not telling them what to do. You're just telling them what not to do. And then it's up to them. They can just work in their own way. Sometimes a very, I think it's easier to just identify the problems and remove them and leave the solutions to the team. One of the common phrases we use in, in Agile is, is ask the team. What, what, what do they need? What option yeah. would they like to take? Empower them to decide their path forward. Obviously, what I aim to do is expose to them a range of options that they may find useful. And I, I might make recommendations mm-hmm. based on my learning, yeah. but it's ultimately down for them to decide because they are the people that have to commit to doing the change. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's the role of the coach. It's not to tell, but um, I often point yeah. people to different 
learning channels and see see what you think of that. Sounds good. I was just going to say, I'm keen to highlight that uh, one of the central themes of this podcast is amplifying newer voices. And I'm aware yeah. that you are part of the, the BCS conference that's coming up later this year. There's yeah. an agile conference around newer voices. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more and our listeners about this conference. Yeah, so um, this was a bit of a pivot and reflect of the BCS Agile group. Um, Jose set it up 10 years ago. Uh, we went a bit quiet in lockdown and um, Seth Singh's now taking it over as the chair. And really, because of lockdown and all these meetups and conferences and great online content, there's so much more competition out there. Whereas maybe 10 years ago, the BCS was uh, had less competition and was just like organised talks. But what we realised is the thing that the BCS is particularly good at is things like career. People new in their careers, people maybe at university, they're learning, they're adapting, or maybe they want to speak at a conference, but they've not done so. And they don't have that track record. Because when I apply for conferences, they say, show us what you've done before. And obviously, a conference then takes on a risk. If you're a new speaker and you don't have that track record and you can't show them something because it's your first time. Now, I was a first-time speaker once as well, and um, we've all been there, even most experienced speakers. So the essence of this conference in September is to actually provide a platform to new speakers, effectively people that have not spoken much before or they want a bit of support and guidance. Now, when they've done that, they can then use that and say, look, I've done that. And then if you wanted to, it's then easier for them to then go on and speak at other conferences. And so we're promoting that on social media through the Twitter account and our LinkedIn account, and I can send you the links for that afterwards. Sounds like an excellent initiative. I will, of course, include the, the links to that when I promote this, this episode. Uh, and to anyone who, who is listening and, and perhaps wants to get involved, give their first talk at a conference, I encourage you to, to take a look at that, give it a go. I've been on that exact journey myself when I've applied for conferences. I've had have had almost auditions where you've had to kind of share what your topic's about and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I got myself onto the scene by speaking initially at meetups, so smaller scale things. That enabled me to cr- or share some videos of talks I've given, and that helped me with getting, I guess, giving those organising conferences the, the confidence that I was going to be doing the right things. But yeah. yeah. And as a principle, it's more batch size, right? So start small, maybe do a five-minute or 10-minute lightning talk, test the idea, get feedback, pivot, adapt. A lot of conference talks are about 45 minutes, maybe longer. But again, the thinking, I would say, especially if it's online, is make it interactive because people mm. just don't want to sit through 45 minutes of you talking to a PowerPoint deck. They want to do stuff. They want to have polls, interactivity, breakout rooms. All that really drives up the engagement. And, and we see from TED, you know, TED's been doing great talks for ages. And they limit talks, I think it's about 20 minutes. Because after about 20 minutes... You know, the brain starts to override that information and becomes hard to retain it all. So just think about that in a conference. You've got three days. How can you possibly remember it all? So short, snappy, well-structured, easy, accessible, all those things really matter. Absolutely. And for anyone who has seen any of the talks that I do, it's exactly that. I don't like to talk at people. I want to engage them and have it as interactive as possible. So, Craig, you are a huge advocate of remote working. And I know recently Airbnb themselves, they, uh, you know, people started voting with their feet in lots of companies. And Airbnb, I think, announced that they were enabling probably the most in- inclusive remote working policy across the, the whole world, where they are allowed to work from any location they would like to. 
Mm. So we're seeing this huge rise of remote working. It's something that I know you're very passionate about and you've been doing for a number of years. So what is, what is your stance on remote working, Craig? Uh, well, my stance is really just let people choose um, and, and mm. effectively drive it through data. I mean, the thing is that for many people, remote working recently has been remote working in a pandemic. So that's not normal remote working. If you're having to balance work, um, homeschooling, an organisation getting up to speed with the right tech, all these other problems that have happened. And, and also the emotional load of not being able to see your friends as much, not being able to travel as much. It's been tough, right? And, you know, obviously people get getting sick too. So all these, all these different things have actually made remote working much harder than would otherwise be the case. Yet the data tells us that actually remote working has been very effective. People like it. People want it. Because they want it so much, it's the great resignation. And the great resignation comes about because people know it works. Right? So when we're working in an agile environment, we're collaborating daily, we're transparent, we've got boards. And it's much more about the outcome and getting the work done rather than presenteeism and being in an office. And, and we can look at the data of effectiveness and, and um, getting work done around that and say, well, it's only going to get better because the technology is going to get better and we've got less worries about COVID and lockdowns and all this other stuff. So it's like the data is really there. And an organisation that doesn't listen to this um, is, is really going to risk losing its best people. Uh, I mean, I'm now able to access jobs within Britain that I couldn't access before because they weren't readily commutable. And also, I don't really want that life anymore of going to London, getting up at three o'clock on a Monday morning and spending the whole week away from my family. We just know there's a better life out there. So it's about quality of life and being effective are the main pillars that we'd go for. And the organisations forcing people in one or two days a week are really missing out because all those people then need to live within commuting distance of an office, which is not always practical or realistic. You know, people want more space because they're working from home. Or, um, you know, people might not live in that locality. As I said when I was going to London, to me, going to London for two days a week is really inefficient. But if I was to go to London for three or four days once a month, that's better. And, of course, there's also environmental impacts too. So there's a lot of things. Everybody's different. Everybody's unique. And everybody knows what's best for them. Because there's mental health to consider, there's work environment to consider, there's broadband speeds to consider, there's a multitude of things to consider. So blanket rules don't really work. And when people know it's not working for them, then they'll look around and there's now more jobs in the market and there's a lot more demand for the right people um, because it's kind of like it's tilted much more towards the, the job seekers' advantage now. Yeah, there's there's a huge almost power shift where... Uh, employees are able to just vote with their feet and, and leave because the, it's such a hot market right now. And mm. to me, the absolute key is is choice and flexibility. It's not a one size fits all situation. So you you had during the pandemic, you had some people who were in house shares and they had to do their working and living inside a single room. And yeah, their experience of working remotely or, or virtually may have not been as great as someone like myself who has the benefit of having a home office and a separate space that I can work from and I can close the door here at the end of the day and switch off from work and go and live the rest of my life so there are, there is different circumstances some people may find that they are more motivated productive in an office some people find they are yeah. more product productive motivated working from home and, and the the ability to see their families and, and have a walk during a during their lunch break and all those other things works for them and some people may find that a hybrid a mixture of the two is, is, is what yeah. works. Very much. So it's, it's, it's individual and it's yeah. about, if possible, data. Because 
what a lot of the back to the office type talk is often driven by is senior executives because it works for them. Or just bought a brand new big expensive office in London and, and sitting here idle. It wasn't that a waste of money. And it makes them look good and makes them look important. Because guess what? In Zoom, everybody's the same size. Whether you've got a gold-plated office or whatever, it doesn't matter anymore. It's not about position and power. It's about getting the job done. So it's very much a democratizing effect. But let's not also lose sight of I mean, I did research on this in the early 90s. And that research referenced work in the 80s on remote working. And and some of that, obviously, that work wasn't necessarily online, but it was like doing it at home rather than doing it in an office. Some of the early adopters of remote working were disabled people who had transport and mobility difficulties. And for them, it was just easier. Now, obviously, we see people with reduced immunity. For, so for them, going into an office with all the transport and everything else is still a risk. And we also see neurodiverse people coming much more to the fore. So neurodiverse people, we see, I mean, some of the supermarkets now doing quiet time and they don't play music. Well, mm-hmm. People that claim an office is a busy, busy place where you bounce ideas off one another. Well, that works for some people, but some people just want that focus time or they don't like the distractions. Whereas at home, you can get that, you know, ideally. You can switch off, you can have quiet, you can play your own music, you can have far more control of your own environment than than in an office that's kind of a bit of a one-size-fits-all. So for me, it's very much, much more about inclusion uh, and it's easier as well to work, say, part-time, balance family time, all these other more social benefits around just plain productivity. Yeah, I inclusivity and mm. the, the the difference uh, in preferences or, or needs of neurodiverse mm. people, highly important. I mean, I, I'm not someone who struggles in that capacity or in that respect, but I go to an office and I'm always surprised by the noise. Just it just mm. it's almost jarring and it's it's so yeah. distracting. And I struggle with it. Let alone people that don't have uh, the, the, I guess the, the same minds and, and way, way of working yeah. that I do. So everyone has just, differences. It's just routine. It's just get kind of funny because I think yeah. back. It's like um, going into an office with flexi desks. And then I'm in a different desk to where I was yesterday and I've got to adjust the desk and plug it all in. It's all different. It's just all cognitive to float. But the other thing is when you're brand new and you're rubbish with names like me, being on Zoom and everybody's got their name in the bottom left-hand corner, is just like fantastic. Like, sure. I never have to worry about forgetting a name all over again. But in an office where it's flexi-desking and everybody sits in a different place every day, I really have to write carefully down where people sit and try to map it up and uh, have a job of trying to just remember people, which is a contractor. Yeah. It's like that's a thing that I actually ha- was having to go through several times a year sometimes. Interesting. So we see uh, the Airbnb example. They 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 announced their, their new policy. Some 800,000 people flooded to their website to see the information about it and, mm-hmm. and potentially apply. What are your thoughts, Craig? What is the, the future of, of working with, with regards to remote working, in-office work, in working and otherwise? Yeah, well, I think I'd say that the, the, the future is simply a choice to the individual. And then what will emerge out of that is people making their own choices to go into the office. And it might vary. Maybe in winter they don't want to travel as much. Maybe in summer they do. Who knows? But it's just like that. You get a hybrid model emerging but you don't make it a hybrid model by forcing people in. So it's hybrid through choice rather than through coming into the office a certain number of days a week. And, of course, if if, you, if an organisation doesn't do that, then they'll lose out to organisations that 
to do provide that. So imagine, let's say, two investment banks in the city. One says, work here flexibly. Another one says, not. Well, people then migrate to the workplace and find more attractive. So therefore, it becomes harder to recruit. And that's like a big problem, because then it's hard to recruit. The work doesn't get done. And then maybe there's the shareholders that ask, well, why is, why is that then? So I see a, a, a sort of future in which we become much more accepting of remote working, and it's much more about the outcomes rather than clocking in timesheets and just getting the work done. So then you could have the option of, yes, you can work 100% remote if you want, which will then lead to a change in society because we won't need to live near cities as much. We can then live in the countryside a bit more. We can buy bigger places because it's cheaper there. We can have more space. We can have a different quality of life. And we can then work in lots of different places quite easily without having to up our families and change school because there's a better job and career come along. So it's it's a, it's a knock-on effect on the whole of society. Now, of course, there's some downsides because cities aren't as busy. And people are saying, yeah, but the death of the city centre, well, that was happening already. So let's address that problem and deal with that by maybe using that unused office space and positioning it back to flats so people don't actually start living in city centres anymore. And we also see problems like in the past, People that were working part-time were sometimes missed over for um, promotions. Well, bringing them back to the office because they're distant isn't going to fix that either. If you've got a biased promotion process, fix that because it's not going to be fixed. It's just going to be as bad as it was before. Um, If you don't fix your biases in recruitment and promotion to make them inclusive and equal, then just bringing people back to the office won't actually address that. So I see a land of better opportunity as well. I mean, I, I applied for Google years ago, but I would never have got a job there because they were in a different country. Um, and the, the thinking of some organisations of you can work in any country, provided they've got an office there, is really, really appealing. Because, I mean, let's face it, the biggest thing is often time zone difference. But you could work anywhere in a comparable time zone that's efficient and effective. And yet, somehow these people that are forcing us back to the office were the ones that set up let's offshore to India and there's a five and a half hour time difference. So you're instantly in creating that bottleneck in the day. There's nothing wrong with work being done in India, but make them empower teams so they're not dependent on collaboration with people five time zones away the whole time. Make empowered teams around the world that are their local self-sufficient teams rather than create dependencies in multiple time zones. And so it's interesting to see how some of the old things that were unchallenged before about your distributed work around the world are now like saying, well, actually, it doesn't really matter where you are, provided you've got that high bandwidth communication and preferably overlapping time zones. So let's think about how work is structured so people can be largely independent in their own time zones and we can think about asynchronous working patterns as well and up our tooling capability. Really interesting insights. My my feeling is that the term work from home, maybe over time, we're replaced with work from anywhere. So WFH yeah. becomes WFA and work from anywhere is work from anywhere you feel you are most productive or whatever works for your yeah. situation. Yeah, very much. Some of the language is quite uh, exclusionary. I see things like back to the office. Well, hang on. Back I'm in my office back, already. Back, return to, back work. to work. That's even return worse. To work, yeah, yeah I, I, gee, I what have we been doing for the last couple of years? I mean, all these key workers, right? You know, and all that, they've, they've obviously been working. And things like face to face. Now, I say, I can see your face, you can see mine. So that's face to face. And you're probably bigger than you would be if you were across a large room, right? So 
things like I, I prefer not to use face-to-face -to, -face to just meeting in the same meeting room. I say, let's meet in 2D or let's meet in 3D. And then everybody knows what you're talking oh. about. Because the language has evolved from an earlier era when we were talking about the difference between being on the phone and being in the same room. Yeah. Interesting. Right, Craig, I am conscious of time. I want to talk a little bit more about with you or a little bit with you about red team thinking. I know something that you yeah. are, again, largely a proponent of. For anyone unfamiliar with red team thinking as a concept, tell us more about it. Yeah, so red team thinking, I mean, it has, has quite a lengthy history. It's in the, the um, Office of the Devil's Advocate that was set up by the Pope uh, way back in the, what, the 16th century to constructively challenge the applications for sainthood. So that's what Red Team is. It's about constructive challenge and decision support. It gained particularly extra traction um, after 9-11 because there was missed opportunities. Um, but it's used, it has been used quite extensively in the military to assist in decision-making. Um, there's obviously Red Teaming, which is about security testing, but this is Red Team thinking, which is about decision support. And it, it works in contexts where making a mistake is very expensive and difficult to recover from, which obviously you would see in the military. If you invade a country, then you see the knock-on consequences of that, and it's very difficult to really um, get kind of pulled back and pivot. So it's about thinking ahead for situations to say, what could unfold if we were to do this? And using techniques like anonymous voting to discuss ideas, so that basically the concept of writing thinking opens up that psychologically safe space, and it opens up the idea of every voice Certainly in the military, there was often a bias of, well, if you're not a five-star general, you're only a private and not going to listen to you. So what do you know? But if you get people to submit their ideas and you don't know who it came from, you assess the idea on its merit and not the voice that said it, whether it's a man or a woman or, or experienced or inexperienced. It's about equal merit. So writing thinking uses a lot of these types of practices to level out thinking, employ critical thinking skills, overcome the many biases that we have because the brain is basically a bias machine. Daniel McC uh, Kahneman said it was a machine for jumping to conclusions and you can see there's optical illusions that were fooled and really it's about understanding when is it appropriate to think more deeply and when is it better to just make a quick decision and being able to make good decisions more quickly by anticipating what might happen. Um, the, um, the, 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 the top of the down... Um, the stuff that designed the situation room in the White House came in after 9-11 because that's one of the key places in the world for making decisions. And he realised it was a poor place. It didn't actually accommodate the uh, the number of people. It was too hot and it just it wasn't thought through. But what we're trying to do is that things like, say, pre-mortem. And pre-mortem is setting yourself in the context of this project has failed. It's a change in mindset, right? So we have failed. We're not trying to avoid failure. We're accepting it's failed. So let's now work backwards to say, what would be the predecessor step? What would be the predecessor step? To work back to the present day to say, that's the failure path. How far down it are we now? Rather than playing like a risk matrix and saying, well, that's not going to happen. This is like the essence of black swan events. We don't talk about things enough that are actually the biggest problems. But changing the way that people frame problems can bring out those hidden insights so that you're more on top of them and anticipate them rather than them being on top of you. Interesting. So I, I leverage a lot of these red team thinking techniques all the time in the work I do. So the, the voting side of things or the, the ability to share thoughts anonymously, I build that into pretty much every 
session meeting retro I facilitate, if you got on what an online whiteboard and you put a prompt out there and say, right, everyone share their thoughts on this anonymously, you start to see ideas coming and then you allow people to dot mm-hmm. vote on the thing that's most important. What should we proceed with? And then you have a, a decision that's gained that isn't necessarily just the genesis from someone in a leadership position, but the collective group and the collective experience is there. Yeah, and then discussing them in a safe way is, is the key thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's effectively, we're thinking you uses practices like liberating structures like that to do that. Mm-hmm. But the essence of then saying, but these are the ideas, we've voted on them, we see which are the top ones, and then you go, well, and so whose idea was that? And you get the person to talk about it, and say, well, I was actually quite surprised that came from somebody who's quite new to the organisation. We wouldn't have done that mm-hmm. otherwise. But maybe they've got special insight because they've just been someone else that they've gained relevant different skills. So really then, by having that open discussion about what the group has decided is important, you're then bringing out psychological safety and making it happen by saying yeah. it's okay to discuss this or, or it's, it's, it's very insightful to discuss that. Whereas before, just saying, oh, the psychological safety here, yeah, but you actually need the practices to put it in place. Saying it isn't enough. You actually yeah. need to do the thing. Saying it, yeah. You can, you can you can tell people they have psychological safety all you like. You have to demonstrate mm-hmm. there is psychological safety through action and through repetitive action, through repetitive demonstration that it's okay to fail, make mistakes, to share something that maybe isn't going to be the right answer. That's okay. And there's not going to be any consequences or biases caused as a, as a, as a result of that. Mm-hmm. So, Craig... It's time to add something new to my backlog. Every every guest of the show, I ask them to add something new to my my themed backlog for for retrospectives, for themed meetings, to to bring a bit of fun, like we talked about earlier, to the workplace. What theme would you add to my backlog? What should I go and do something creative with? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I I used to sing in choirs before they kind of fell by the wayside in COVID. So anything sort of musical. Uh, anything okay. that uh, you've not really tried before. I mean, I was into folk music. I mean, I was thinking as well. I mean, I quite like Dire Straits. That would be quite a good theme for a retro, maybe. Dire Straits, oh, the retro. I'll, I'll, I'll have a think about musical, choir, folk, Dire Straits-ish. I'll, I'll see where my mind comes to yeah. and see what we come up with. Is yeah, there and, anything uh, else I, I got one of your murals and started adding the actual music to it so people heard the music in the yeah. background. And it's just like bringing that multi-sensory experience to make it more interesting. I encourage it, you know. Kick off a prompt like... Uh, don't stop me now from Queen and what yeah. should we not stop doing? What's going really well for us? Play it in the background yeah. as people are silently reflecting. And then, yeah, and just creates a bit of atmosphere. As you said, multi, multi-sensory. Mm-hmm. So, Craig, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we finish the episode today? I know it's just great to be in the podcast and, uh, you know, I can share my contact details afterwards. Feel free to um, browse my channel, read my blog, connect up on LinkedIn and see my videos, all that sort of stuff. And uh, really, it's about networking and connecting so we can all learn off one another. Thank you, Craig. Do connect with Craig if you've liked anything he said. He has an active blog, uh, a set of large advocates of red team thinking, remote working, and a a range of other agile topics. Thank you for sharing your wisdom today, Craig. It's been a pleasure to host you on the show. We are always looking for new guests to appear on the show, so do reach out if you'd like to be involved yourself. Did you know that the Virtually Agile has a Slack community? We've got numbers growing on a weekly basis of a 500 fellow Agilists, so everyone's welcome to join, share, learn, and network with one, with one another. You can find the link to access the community at www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk. As always, folks, don't stop believing. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. 
Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things Agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.